0: To you all on this very bright Palm Sunday, and happy Palm Sunday to you. Today we remember and celebrate the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as her rightful king. That first Palm Sunday was such a day of irony, wasn't it? Jesse pointed that out a bit. Uh, it was a day when Jesus was declared the son of David, and thus the king. Uh, and yet he came in humbly on a colt. It was a day of immense joy, but it was also the precursor to the saddest event of human history, when the Son of God himself would be rejected by the people he came to. In the same moment, Jesus was being received by some and rejected by others. So much was going on on that first Palm Sunday, but the Dominant strain on that day was joy. Joy in the king. The king had come and he had received a king's fanfare. On Palm Sunday we do so often turn our attention to Jesus as king, as we've just been singing about. After all, it was the day when he was heralded into the royal city, even if he wasn't installed as a king that day. Uh, Today our sermon text Uh, The one I want to consider here, uh, will point to Jesus as king. And it's going to tell us something about the kind of king that Jesus is and will be. So we'll find that then in Psalm 110. We'll see there that Jesus is the priest king. Would you turn there with me? We looked a little bit at Psalm 110 last week, towards the end of Mark 12. Jesus quoted it. He challenged the religious leaders with what we find in verse 1, and so we'll cover some of that territory again today. Let's read Psalm 110 together now. Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Let's pray. Father, you are good and wise, and you have made a plan of redemption for us that is beyond anything we could have ever imagined, much less asked for. This morning, we praise you for sending your very precious son to us to be our king and to be the one who would lay down his life to save us, to bring us in. So, Lord, we do this morning come before you with free and open hearts, and we give you the praise that you are due. We ask that you would help us to fix our eyes on you as we look through this psalm. In Jesus' name, amen. As we work through this psalm, I want to especially look at Psalm 110 through the eyes of the New Testament writers. This psalm is quoted over and over again in the New Testament. So I want to let the Bible be a commentary on the Bible. The Bible, of course, is the best commentary on itself. It's the only infallible, inerrant commentary there is. Other commentaries are good and helpful. But when the Bible talks about itself and points to passages in there, we want to listen carefully. And so we will find that the New Testament has a lot to say about Psalm 110. Last week we saw already Jesus interacting with this psalm as he interacted with the religious leaders. As we look at this psalm today, the key thing we'll see in it is that Jesus is the promised priest king. Jesus is the promised priest king. So we'll see first that Jesus is the king and second we'll see that he is a royal priest. As we Look at the psalm, we do see language that is fit for a king. Psalm 110 describes a king who is seated at the right hand of God in verse 1. We saw this verse, like I said last week, as Jesus is challenging the religious leaders. He asks, if the Christ is the son of David, how can David call him Lord? You'll remember in verse 1 where the word Lord is in all capitals, behind that is the Hebrew for Yahweh. This is, runs all throughout the Old Testament. If you have a translation that brings this out, you'll see that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord is Yahweh, if you were to look into the Hebrew. And where it's Lord with the capital L, lowercase o-r-d, that's Adonai. It's another name for God in the Old Testament, though sometimes Adonai refers to uh, rulers and leaders. And here we see that Yahweh speaks to To Adonai and says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. Uh, The verse points to a distinction within God between father and son. I don't think that the original readers would have necessarily seen that. In fact, uh, in commentary from after this psalm is written that we have still existing among Jewish commentators, they really don't know what to do with this verse. There's a lot of... uh, I would say, confusion, perhaps, over what's going on here, but Jesus understands exactly what's going on, and the New Testament authors do as well. Uh, God is revealing something about himself here. Now, this is not saying that the Son is different, a different God, or much less, a lesser God than the Father, Uh, but within the one God, there is distinction between Father and Son. We see a pointer to that here. And it is to this royal Son that David calls out to his Lord. And he does that with the perception of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus points out in Mark 12. Uh, The Father tells the Son to sit at his right hand until his enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. And we can ask the question, when does this take place? When does this conversation that's talked about here, when does it take place? Uh, On that question, the New Testament authors give us the time. Uh, This takes place... After the crucifixion, which is followed by the resurrection, after the ascension, when Jesus comes to his Father in heaven. We can see that. We're going to start, hope your thumbs are warmed up, we're going to be turning around in the Bible today a bit. Uh, You can go to Acts chapter 2, and we'll see it there. You will recall that in Acts chapter 2, the promised Holy Spirit has been poured out on the disciples. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in tongues. Peter speaks up to explain what's going on. Remember, people are confused. Some people think that they're drunk. What's going on? And Peter speaks up and says, well, these men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's still the morning. And he begins to explain what is happening. He connects the outpouring of the Spirit that's taken place on the day of Pentecost with a prophecy in Joel chapter 2. Then he connects that event with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. After that, he goes to Psalm 16, talks about how the Lord says that uh, he will not let his Holy One see corruption. That means decay, decay in the ground. And, And then Peter says, well, we have the tomb of David with us today. So this promise must not have been made to David because he did see corruption. He did decay. And he points to the fact that that Psalm sixteen was there speaking of Jesus. So we're going to pick up in that. I wanted to give you a little bit of the argument there. We'll pick up in Acts chapter two now and read in verse twenty-nine down through verse twenty uh, verse thirty-five, excuse me. Acts two twenty-nine. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God See, that's our language. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So there's our verse there. Uh, Peter is telling us when this takes place. This seating at the right hand of God takes place after Jesus ascends. And it's from this exalted position that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. I want to stop. Uh, here for a moment and remind us of this amazing reality. Uh, On Palm Sunday, we are reminded of the fact that Jesus is king and that he will reign over all the earth. And this has both current and future aspects to it. One of the incredible things that Jesus has done as he sat down at the right hand of God, is that he has fulfilled the promise that he made to send the Holy Spirit. Uh, In being seated, he sent out the Holy Spirit. Now, let me tell you, I don't send... The Holy Spirit to anybody. Uh, you don't have the power to send the Holy Spirit. We are all partakers of the Holy Spirit uh, as a gift from God. We could not demand the Holy Spirit. We could never earn the Holy Spirit. But the Lord Jesus Christ, risen, ascended, seated at the right hand of God, has sent God's Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And because of that, we do have the holy spirit in us that is a marvelous gift from god he has uh, come to dwell in us we have further proof of the timing uh, or in where jesus is at in acts 7 if you jump ahead a couple more chapters uh, in acts chapter 6 to 7 we have the trial of jesus of stephen the testimony of stephen and then the execution of Stephen essentially the the martyrdom of Stephen just want to point out the last few verses of it in Acts chapter 7 verses 54 to 56 now when they had heard these things that's the crowd who put Jesus or uh, excuse me Stephen on trial here now when they had heard these things they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him but he that Stephen being full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. He said I behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Here again we see that Jesus now is at the right hand of God. Um, though in this scene he's not said to be sitting here he's standing, he's standing ready to receive his first martyr. but that's where Jesus is at. He is at the right hand of God. Uh, another text I want to go to for Psalm 110. Uh, This will be the last one for this verse here for now. Uh, In Hebrews, jump ahead to the first couple verses of Hebrews. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. We'll see our verse pointed to again. At the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, In fact, then this verse is going to be mentioned again in verse 13. Jesus is superior to angels, and to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So this, Psalm 110 is cited here again. This isn't even all the examples where it's cited, but you can see it's getting quoted again and again. And when is it that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God? It is after he makes pure for sins. Alright, I ran you through quite a bit there, but let's go back to Psalm 110 now. What is clear as day is that currently Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God. After the humiliation of his crucifixion, he has been exalted in the resurrection, and he has been exalted through the ascension where he has gone to the right hand of God, and there he is seated. He has been glorified and exalted. And Philippians 2.9 says that he's been given the name that is above every name. So we continue in our psalm here, verse 2. Uh, we see that uh, he, I think there, speaking of Yahweh, sends forth the mighty scepter of Jesus. The Lord, yeah, there it is, the Lord Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Here David is speaking to Adonai, Yahweh sends out his, the scepter of Jesus, and he's called to rule in the midst of his enemies. Now, I can't say this with certainty, but perhaps this, re, this verse refers to today here. Uh, it's certainly true that all those who believe in Jesus have entered into that kingdom. We've entered in by faith. We're citizens of another city, Philippians 2 will tell us. Uh, we have entered into the kingdom of Jesus. We receive him as our king in our lives And the reign of Jesus is most clearly, visibly seen today in the lives of those who have accepted him and have submitted to his kingship. Uh, Today, those who declare themselves as enemies of the Lord, on the other hand, are numerous. There are many today who are enemies of the Lord, enemies of his reign, enemies of all of the claims that God makes. The real Jesus of the Bible is not in fashion in respectable society today. Submission to King Jesus will put you at odds with the world around you. But he rules in us, and we live in the midst of his enemies. And we must take comfort that although it doesn't look like God rules this world, nevertheless he does. There is no power that is greater than God. You know, It's not as if today God is just trying to build up an army so that someday he can overcome the world. Jesus says that he has already overcome the world. What is keeping God from breaking out in this world today and setting everything straight is his patience. It's his mercy. Today is a day of mercy. It's a day that the Lord is waiting, patiently waiting for all the flock to come in. He's waiting for sinners to repent and come to him. It's not as if God is, isn't powerful enough to carry out his justice and his judgment on this world. He's being merciful. We can take comfort in that. Uh, Anything that we face today in this present age, uh, it's not because God isn't powerful enough to stop it. Anything that he allows us to endure or calls us to walk through is part of his good plan for us and for his glory. The illustration has been used before, but you can think of the work of a sculptor. When somebody takes a block of marble and they're going to turn that chunk of stone into a sculpture, uh, they have to get the, some significant chisels and they, they break pieces out of it, uh, chip out little pieces at a time and smaller pieces as they get closer to the contour of what they want. Then there's these uh, rasps that have uh, some significant teeth to them. And they they shave off material. And then they get finer files as they get closer. And the, the process, I have to imagine if marble could speak and feel and think, I wouldn't want to be in the workshop as the artisan chips out the pieces. Uh, it wouldn't be a pretty sound. But... The finished project product is beautiful and it lasts for generations. The Lord, as He is working in our lives, uh, does a work that sometimes is quite uncomfortable. As He is forming the image of Christ in us, He is busting out pieces of our lives that don't look like Christ, and it is very painful. And sometimes it's the slow grinding of the file in our lives. And it's painful, and it drags on and on. But he is working. The pain that he allows in our lives is not because he can't do anything about it, but because he has a good plan that he is working out patiently in our lives. So we can take comfort in this king here. Uh, He is king, though in this day, it doesn't look like it. But that's not all that we see in this psalm. Uh, we also hope in the public reign of Jesus in this world. There is coming a day in which he will rule so that every eye will see it undeniably. want to read in Psalm 110 again here, verses 5 to 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will, bring from the, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Uh, David turns to praise the Lord, Yahweh, as he speaks of this exalted Christ figure, again called Adonai here. You'll see in verse 5, it's lowercase o-r-d. Speaking of Adonai, he says, The Lord is at your right hand. Jesus came from the Father, we see in John's Gospel, and he returns to his Father. One day in the future, he will shatter kings, the psalm tells us. He will execute judgment among the nations, and there will be a tangible destruction that comes with that. It says here that chiefs will be shattered over the whole wide earth. He's not going to set up a small kingdom his future reign will be worldwide, even as it will be visible. Again, today is the day of his mercy and forbearance, but the day of his wrath is coming. Uh, people so often look at the Jesus of the Bible as weak. He says things like, turn the other cheek. Uh, the power and might of Jesus will be on display when he comes in wrath to execute judgment. We see this in places like Revelation 19. Verse 7 Of Psalm 110 may seem a bit puzzling. What's it talking about? He's talking about drinking from a creek and lifting up his head. Uh, Perhaps verse 7 is a picture of a victorious conqueror drinking from a creek. Uh, He can stoop down and drink without fear of being attacked because his enemies have been wiped out. Uh, And so he raises himself up again. Uh, In this psalm, uh, I think we see ourselves especially in verse 3. Verse 3 says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. We see a people, the people of this king who are offering themselves freely. We should do the same for our king today. We come before him, it says here, in holy garments. Now perhaps that's describing maybe a pointer to Revelation 19.18 when the bride of Christ is dressed in the righteous deeds of the saints. Uh, That might be a parallel there. Uh, Day by day in our hearts, we should come before this king freely and worship him. He is worthy of our worship and praise. We can rejoice and exult in him now, knowing that one day every eye will see his glory. Today we might not look on the outside like we are servants of the king. Today it might look like we are on the losing side of the fight. But take heart. The Lord Jesus Christ has overcome the world. And one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This Palm Sunday we wait in anticipation of this returning king and of his current and future glory. Now we have dealt with the majority of Psalm 10. The main verse that we haven't even touched on yet is verse 4. And there we'll see that Jesus is the royal priest. So let's consider that now want to read the verse again. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Christ described in Psalm 110 is also going to be a priest in the line of Melchizedek. Now we meet this figure, Melchizedek, um, for the first time back in Genesis 14. After Abraham has beaten the League of Nations there, Uh, He has delivered his nephew through that, and we find Melchizedek described in verse 18 of chapter 14 of Genesis as priest of the Most High God. We don't know much about Melchizedek. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to even say his name. Uh, But we do know that he turns out to be an important figure in this book, in the whole Bible, that is. Uh, He's mentioned in Genesis 14. He's not mentioned again until this psalm, Psalm 110. Then he's not mentioned again for the rest of the Old Testament. He's not mentioned for much of the New Testament either. There's only one other book in the Bible where he's mentioned and that's in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 5, and we'll be going there if you want to start turning to Hebrews. In Hebrews 5, 6, we get Psalm 110 quoted again, verse 4 that we just read. Uh, He's hinted at or pointed to as this priest in Hebrews 5.10 and Hebrews 6.20 and we're going to pick up in Hebrews chapter 7 and read from there a bit. The author takes a detour from the first time he mentions Melchizedek in Hebrews and he comes around to address it fully here and Hebrews 7, verses 1 to 17, the author of Hebrews says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's uh, Tzedek in Melchizedek. Uh, And then he is also the king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to get to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, Uh, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? And when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom those things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one had ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when, after pre, when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now don't worry, I'm not going to work through all of that passage. There was so much there, we could preach three, four sermons out of that. just want to glean out a couple points. And you'll notice that, our, that Psalm 110, verse 4 is quoted in verse 17. Uh, notice here that the priestly line of Melchizedek is greater than Levi. If you don't catch anything else, that should be coming through here. Melchizedek's line of priesthood is greater than Levi's. And that's important as well. We'll see here a second that the the Levitical priesthood uh, would never have conferred priesthood to a member of the tribe of Judah. Remember member of the 12 sons of Jacob, uh, the priesthood went to the line of Levi, especially to the line of Aaron. And that's where the high priest was. So if the Messiah, if the Christ is a son of David from the tribe of Judah, how can the Christ be a priest? Because he's never going to be a Levite. Well, we see here that the Lord had sworn, all the way back Psalm 110, verse 4, that Jesus would be the priest, not through the line of Levi, but through the line of Melchizedek. So he's going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, the next thing, how is it that Jesus, from here... It enters into that priesthood. What, what's the similarity? It's not based off of the fact that he's born in the line of Melchizedek. He's not born in the line of uh, Levi either. The connection, says here, is an indestructible life. We see that in verse 14. Uh, that's the connection of this priesthood. Uh, it is a priesthood that continues forever. Verse 3 says, he is, speaking of Melchizedek, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Uh, We don't read anything about Melchizedek's birth, his lineage, his death. We just see him mentioned, and then he's gone off the scenes. It's as if he just lives forever. And the author of Hebrews says, in that sense, he's like the Son of God, who lives forever. Forever, That is the point of connection uh, with Melchizedek here. Uh, and this connection is not through biology, but it's this everlasting theme that the Christ shares by which he takes on this priesthood. And uh, in that, then he becomes a superior priest to the Levites. You know, the, there was a problem. We see this later in he, uh, Hebrews 7, verse 23. It says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The Levitical priests in the Old Testament had a habit of dying, just like every human being. Uh, you might have had the best, most righteous priest there ever was You could have ever hoped for, and he would still die. But the intercession of this priest will never be interrupted by death. Now, maybe that gives us some hint back in Psalm 110 of a a hard verse to understand. Remember, there's this theme, this everlasting theme in the priesthood of Jesus. Back in Psalm 110, in verse 3, the second half of it. I don't know what your translation says, but the ESV says, From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Uh, Even the ESV footnote says that the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. So I'm not going to speak with rock-solid certainty that I know exactly what this is saying. But perhaps we get a pointer here. I think that perhaps verse 3 could be speaking to the eternality of this priestly king. The womb is the start of life, you could say. And the morning is the start of the day. And the dew of youth seems to point to youthfulness. And it says here that it belongs to this Christ figure. Uh, perhaps this verse points to the long life expectancy of this Christ figure we're talking about. you know, Imagine finally getting the perfect priest. Or the perfect king. And that king comes into office. At the ripe old age of 100. He might be the best king you've ever laid eyes on. You're probably not going to have that king around for very long are you? Uh, you're not going to be expecting a very long season of service. For that priest. But this Christ figure in Psalm 110 has the dew of his youth. There is confidence of a long reign before him. And if that is the case in Psalm 110, uh, we do certainly see that in Hebrews 7. The idea of this everlasting reign. Uh, and We see that elsewhere in the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, we have a king who is never going to hand over his power. Uh, There's never going to be an election for this king. We have a priest who will never need to be replaced the future can be a scary prospect at times, can't it? As we think about 2023, what will happen, or 2024, uh, it can give us anxiety. It's political, social, national, international, moral problems in our nation that we could lose sleep over. Even when we do see encouraging things in our nations, we wonder how long before that will be reversed. But as uncertain as this world is, we have a rock-solid hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our relationship with God, the most important relationship in our lives, will never come into doubt. And we'll never face the slightest shade of doubt because our intercessor is not going to die. The one who speaks on our behalf is never going to need to be replaced. The one who advocates for us before the Father, will live forever. This priest ain't going away. And the reign of Jesus is not going to be stopped. His reign in us will continue and his reign in this world is coming. It will not be stopped. We can have an incredible confidence this Palm Sunday in our King. Uh, The people worshipped him and praised him and they didn't know the half of it. The beauty and the glory of this king one day will be evident for every eye to see. And so, on this Palm Sunday, we live in the irony that Jesus is the rightful heir of this whole world and that one day every eye will see it. But today, most people don't. Today, we can be treated like the scum of the earth for following this king. But you know what? It's worth it. It's worth it to endure for the sake of this Christ, for this reigning king, for this priest who ever lives to intercede for us. It's worth it to suffer for him today. Whatever we endure today will be our glory tomorrow. We might look like fools for Christ today, but one day we will be vindicated. He will be vindicated before every eye. He has been given the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And every knee will bow before him. So today we get to worship the king. Today we get to come before him and offer ourselves freely before this king. That's our joy today. That's our glory. Now on this Palm Sunday, we want to remember that together. I'm going to go ahead and invite the men to prepare for communion today. Berean, we... Practice an open community